Welcome to Chapter Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. In this episode, you'll be hearing my conversation with Lucy Caldwell, who is a multi-award-winning author of three novels, a collection of short stories, and several stage plays and radio dramas. She is the editor of the recent Faber anthology, Being Various, New Irish Short Stories. I spoke to Lucy about her writing process, whether it is a short story, a play, or a novel, and who really is the storyteller behind the stories. Here is my conversation with Lucy. I was reading one of your short stories that I found uh, on on a, on a website somewhere. The mm-hmm. it was uh, through the wardrobe. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. When did you write that one? Um, I wrote that one a few years ago. I was putting together my collection, Multitudes, my first collection of short stories, mm-hmm. and um, I was with the whole collection. I was trying to write stories of girls and young women and stories that you wouldn't expect if you thought of Northern Ireland at that particular place and time and I'd been reading as well I would I tried to fit into the story I have um uh, gay friends who felt they were not represented in contemporary literature and so I have in that collection I have a gay love story for example and I have um mixed race relationships um and one thing that I really wanted to do is I was I'd researched and read a lot of stories about um, about young girls growing mm-hmm. up, young women who felt that they were in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. And so that story, um, I sort of researched, you know, organisations in Northern Ireland that would help a child and their parents if they thought they found themselves in that position. And so I wrote that story and I put it deliberately towards the centre of the collection. I think it's five or six stories in. Mm-hmm. So when you come to it in the collection, you're used to all the stories being narrated by women. And so uh, the intention was, it should come as a shock to realize that this story is being narrated by someone who feels that they're female, but feels that they are they are seen the wrong way or in the wrong body or, you know, whatever whatever the, the right way of phrasing that would be. Yeah, I, I certainly felt uh, the that moment of, ah, oh, that's, that's interesting. Because when, you know, mm. you, because, I think the device you used of talking to the reader and I'm the yes. character, you know, mm-hmm. I think that really helped. Uh, I didn't even assume that, I mean, I'm a boy, but I assumed yes. it was a girl because you started with the, the bell dress, you know? Yes. And yes, then yes. when you turned it, I was like, oh, wow. Now I really felt like I was feeling everything you were saying because... I don't remember, I don't have a lot of memories of being a six-year-old, but thinking that a six-year-old would be going through this and yeah. was, it was, uh, was very impactful. Like I'm still feeling it because I just read it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, it's written in the second person as well, which I, actually, I think that that's one of the worst points of view to write a story and when it doesn't work, because when it doesn't work, it just feels so excruciating. You know, you feel like, your opinion against the wall yeah. <laughs> um, by the author. But the way that I tried to use it is um, a sort of, I felt that it allowed me to get a greater degree of intimacy than 
a, a first person or a sort of claustrophobic close third. And the way that I saw it um, is almost as if it could be an older self looking back. Um, yes, you know, in yes. the case of that story, when it says it, yeah. everything is going to be OK, yes. Or it could be um, it could be a benevolent, benevolent narrator somewhere um, or it could be the interior voice in your own head. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted that sense of the reader to, to those stories in the collection that a second person is the eavesdropper. You know, mm-hmm. the reader isn't being directly addressed. The reader is just it's just sort of there overhearing something very intimate. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm I'm curious to know when what was the first thing you wrote? Like, did you start writing very <laughs> well, early? Literally, yeah, what's what's funny? I have um, my son is four and a half and um, my mom says that already at four and a half for my son, everything is is currently dinosaurs and Mm -hmm. um, he wants to be a pilot and a policeman and a paleontologist (laughs) Um, oh oh, he likes the alliteration (laughs) Uh, my mom says when I was that age I already wanted to be a writer and even before I could write I would draw I would sort of fold up pages to look like books Mm -hmm. and I would draw the pictures on them and then I would tell her what words I wanted and where I wanted them to go Um, (laughs) so you know I think it's something that I always always wanted to do you know I was always um like making writing books and making magazines for my sisters and when I read sort of in my teens about the Bronte siblings their Mm -hmm. imaginary world I had such a sort of rush of love and recognition for them because I thought that's what me and my sisters were all very close in age that's what we used to do and we used to you know sometimes it was with Lego sometimes we used to draw and make books and make these big family sagas but we would have these these whole worlds that would go on for like years and years and years and generations, you know, charting everything that happened to these these people of ours in their imaginary worlds. And so I think, yeah, I was always doing that, you know, when my parents got a, a video camera, like one of those huge, big, clunky things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was always um, uh, making up sort of films and directing people and making films and things. So I think it's something that I've always wanted to do. And luckily, though, I think... Um, when I teach, I teach quite a lot of wor- workshops, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes for beginners. And you quite often feel that actually that experience isn't something particularly unique to me. I think a lot of people have it, but for a lot of people, it gets, um, you know, stamped out of them or they're told that it's frivolous or that it's silly or they're somehow m- made to feel ashamed of their imaginary worlds. And I think I was lucky enough that I had um, parents, my mum in particular, who um, had, had never had done any schooling beyond the age of 16 herself but who loved books always a really keen reader and and we always had so many books and we always went to the library every single week and and so stories were really um important where I grew up and as well teachers I had you know I was lucky enough to have the right supportive teachers at the right moments and the you know actually the thing you said about it people not really getting that uh, push when they're, when they're kids. I mean, mm. certainly growing up in India, I remember it was encouraged to have an imagination and, you know, be creative until you learned the language. And once yeah. the language skills were there, you had to do everything the way, you know, the way it was the book says. And yeah. creativity and, and writing and, and, and storytelling wasn't really something that I, I definitely did not grow up with it. And yes. well, I had one of my, really. 
one of my um, best ever students um, was the British born son of Indian immigrants to the UK. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize at all, but they brought him and his siblings up um, wanting them to have sort of good, solid professional jobs. And so he, when he came along, he was in his mid thirties and um, early thirties. And he came along to this complete beginner's writing class that I was doing. And he had that story. He said he always desperately wanted to be a writer, but his parents, after a certain stage, they'd stopped indulging it. And they told him, no, you know, you need to earn a living. And, you need to... and he had a very good job in IT, but he just felt like he felt something was dead inside. Something was just missing. And he was so good. So he did the beginner's course. And then I went on to do an advanced creative writing course. Um, and then he actually came and he got completely on his own merit because I had nothing to do with the selection procedure. He got a place on a master's programme at a really good London university at which stage I was teaching at. And um, he wrote his novel, which he's still working on. And I always felt, um, you know, a student like that, you always feel such respect for and such pride as well, because in the face of parents who haven't encouraged you or who've told you, no, don't do this, do something else instead, to find your way back to that as an adult, I think is um, it can be really tough, it can be feel really, really vulnerable, really exposing, you know. Um, was there ever a time for you that you were that you thought of doing something else or was it were you always yeah, along, coming along this path? Do you know, I, I actually have an Indian novelist to, to credit um, for sort of saving my literary career and um, my literary life. I had um, I wrote my first novel while I was at university. Um, you know, I was very young and, and it got published. Um, I was so naive at the time, you know, I didn't realise that if you wrote a novel, it might not get published and, right. and mine did. <laughs> um, and so it was literally, it was sort of the first sort of grown up thing that, that I'd written. Mm -hmm. And um, then it was the second novel that I really, really had problems with. And I finished the draft of it. And my first novel is set in in Belfast and in Donegal mm -hmm. in, in Southern Ireland. and it's narrated by a six-year-old and a 16-year-old um, and it was a lot closer to home and I had this idea that to be a real novelist you needed to sort of you know prove yourself and you needed to write third person you needed to take on something bigger something more epic mm -hmm. and so I I went to Bahrain in the Middle East um, and I researched um, uh, I researched Islam and I researched the stories of Christian missionaries, Bible smuggling into Saudi Arabia. And I wrote this big, big draft of a novel sort of like 120,000 words or something. <laughs> and I had this sort of sinking feeling when I finished that it just wasn't any good. And I think I didn't even quite give it to my literary agent to read. I gave it to his assistant. And um, she told me, yeah, it's, it's no good. I think you've gone badly wrong. I think you need to really rethink this. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, it was really good advice because it was exactly it was she was completely right. But at the time, that was so hard. And, yeah. you know, I didn't have I, I'd written my first novel. I, I didn't have any, you know, I was writing I was doing a bit of journalism. I was doing a little bit of sort of book reviewing. I was, I think, still doing occasionally a bit of waitressing. I didn't I didn't have any one thing that I could then fall back on. And so I started I thought maybe. It's true when they say you've got one book in you. Maybe my first novel was my book and maybe I just can't do this. Right. And so I started applying for jobs um, 
I had this idea that if I worked at an oral history archive, that might be a good fit because it would still be stories, but it would be other people's stories, you know? And mm. um, so I was applying for these jobs and not even getting invited to interview. And um, yeah, it was a really low point. Um, and I was sort of struggling, didn't, didn't know how I was going to get by. And then some family friends took pity on me and they invited me to Hay, Hay Festival, sort of an equivalent of Jaipur. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, the writer that I went to see was Kieran Desai who had just written just i think won the booker prize for the inheritance of loss mm-hmm. and and i hadn't yet read that novel i'd read her first novel um and really enjoyed it and i'd grown up on um her mother's uh, what is it called the the, the village by the sea um anita decides children's yeah, novel i love yeah. and i'd read some of her other novels as a as an adult and kieran desai was just brilliant and she talked about how after her first novel she'd really struggled with her second and she talked about how she couldn't afford to pay her rent anymore so had to give up her her flat wherever she was living and live with friends and then she was really funny and wry and she said she ran out of friends and so she no longer had any sofas to sleep on and so she went back to her mother's house and she said she just felt so inadequate you know her mother is this booker shortlisted novelist and and she couldn't manage her second and she said at one point she printed out all the pages that she'd written and there were more than a thousand and she thought I'm going to get these in order and she laid them out on the veranda of her mother's house um I think it was in the Himalayas and she said the pages just started blowing away in the breeze and she just watched them blow away and then she thought I've got to I've got to start this again I've got to do this and she managed it and then her novel won the booker and I was just sitting there in the audience thinking and it had taken her 10 years and and she'd done it and it was hearing that and hearing her say that just it like it turned on a light for me and I thought I'm just not going to give up I'm going to give this another go Mm -hmm. and so then I went away and I you know restarted my novel and actually the sort of what I talk about is a failed draft um in retrospect you know I couldn't have written what I went on to write without having done all that work and you know written what I did write so right. it sort of wasn't failed. It was just a, it was just a draft. It was just a stepping stone. Um, but that was when I, I learned for the first time, because of course, you know, you learn that lesson again and again um, as a writer. But that was, yeah, that was, that was the first time I, I learned that. And so if Kieran Desai ever hears this, I owe her, <laughs> I owe her, I owe her. A I will make sure JLF <laughs> tells her about this. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think that story is just great. It's such a good way to bring attention to why these festivals are so important because you never know who's mm-hmm. sitting in the audience um and getting inspired uh especially no, exactly and they're at that think, they're at that point yeah and you know what i think as well i always try to if i'm talking to festival or something the way that you get introduced it's the really sort of shiny you know sort of shellac version and they, they mention awards and they mention successes yeah. and actually that rarely you know that that time hearing Karen Desai talk about sort of the the back of the tapestry and all the sort of snarled tangled trailed bits and the difficulties and whatever that was what if she had not mentioned any of that you know I don't know I I don't know if I would have gone away and, and right. restarted my novel or I wouldn't have done it then um and it was hearing her candor and hearing her her honesty and her humility that um that seemed to make it possible for for me to to start again 
You know, actually, that's that's one of the reasons why why I wanted to do this podcast too. Because many times the at the festivals, the moderator, there's other panelists, and people end up only doing a few sound bites. You know, like they don't get mm-hmm. to actually have a proper discussion about what it is like when you're not writing and how mm-hmm. hard that can be sometimes when either you know you're not happy with what what you've spent time on or yeah. or those moments and i think that's it's nice to hear writers basically talk about how the the end product may look perfect but it was not perfect mm-hmm. uh, along the way yes yes i think it's really important do you uh so I know you you also write plays and you write novels. Mm-hmm. Is there so I I also I write uh, what I call read plays. They're mm-hmm. they're they're basically dialogue driven stories, and they're yes, my writing platform. That's where I post everything. But yeah. for me, it's my favorite like type of story is is just two people talking, and yeah, it feels lovely. very comfortable to just you know type. Uh, two people talking. So, and I'm scared of the idea of a novel just because I think I can't describe more than you know a paragraph of what are what a uh, what someone's mm-hmm. feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I think that um, it's really easy to undervalue what comes naturally. You know, I right. am no good at uh, <laughs> metaphor. You know, I'm not a particularly stylish writer in terms of description or any you know sometimes I read a novel and I'm just in awe of how the novelist has managed to read I'm reading a, a friend of mine Claire Clark has published a novel called In the Light of a Sun that's about mm-hmm. Goff, and and it's set in Weimar Germany and it's it's historical and I'm I just like page after page I'm just in awe that she has I mean it's through research of course and through other things but through just like the magic and alchemy she has managed to describe every detail of everything that would right. be in that room and what they're wearing and i mean that's incredible i i i just i just can't do that um, yeah. <laughs> and so you know but but i know that what i can do is i i can and i'm always very comfortable uncomfortable writing third person you know because i sort of feel i'm there in a way um but i can ventriloquize you know, as you, as you right. say, you know, I can, I can do characters, I can channel characters, um, and I can hear rhythms of dialogue, and um, and so actually, the more, the more that I've done it, the more I've thought, that's yeah, that's that's what I can do, and there's mm-hmm. there's no bad there's no bad thing in that. Yeah, there's a brilliant novel you should read. It's by um, it's it's one of those hidden gems that no one ever knows. Um, mm-hmm. And it's called Alfred and Guinevere, and it's by James Shulier, who's the American poet. And mm-hmm. he wrote this novel. It's very, very slim. I think it's it's been republished by like NYRB or you know classics, whatever mm-hmm. modern classics. And um, it's entirely Alfred, the little boy, and his sister Guinevere talking. Mm. Um, that's it's only got one right. or two lines of even you know it doesn't even have like he said she said sort of thing. The whole yeah. novel is just these two children talking, and it's it's absolutely brilliant. So um, I will pick that yeah. up. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> yeah. that does, and and those are actually the things that I'm drawn to reading as well. I love reading mm-hmm. screenplays. I love reading plays. Mm-hmm. I love people talking about writing plays. <laughs> I, yeah. I I just yeah. yeah YouTube. I just look up playwrights talking. That's that's my yeah. favorite thing to do. Yeah. Do you know um Do you know the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast with Simon Stevens? 
I've heard it. I've heard a couple episodes. Yeah, I'm not subscribed yeah, to it, but yeah, I've, I've heard it. It's really, really good. Yeah. Each episode is just sort of like an hour of him talking to a playwright about their plays and their craft. And yeah, it's, it's I get, uh, a real resource. I I'm I always feel bad when I can't have access to the play itself. So I, it's a, mm-hmm. it's weird to have people talk about the process of writing something when I haven't read it or seen it. <laughs> yeah. So those are the yeah. ones. So if I can find something that I online and, you know, I can read uh, what they wrote, then then I definitely want to know what went behind every single decision. And I'm yeah. actually, that's something I'm, I'm curious about with you when, especially when, with plays, do you, do you know, like how, in terms of percentage, like how much do you really know what the story is going to be before you start writing it? Oh, so interesting. Um, do you know, with, it's easier to answer that with, short stories which I've been writing a lot more recently um mm-hmm. I published my first collection in 2016 mm-hmm. although it had taken about 10 years of writing to try you know writing short stories and trying to write those short stories for them to work and right. um, and I've since edited an anthology of short stories for Faber called Being mm-hmm. Various it was published um at the start of May and I'm just putting the finishing touches to my second collection which should be up with Faber <laughs> Touchwoods next year mm-hmm. um, and so with short stories there's a real freedom because a lot of the time my short stories aren't even really about plot it's more like an atmosphere or mm-hmm. you know I think of them like a spell or like a mood sometimes or mm-hmm. and so I'm just trying to capture that sort of intensity and I'll it'll be it'll be just trying to capture a mood or a moment or um so that's sort of easier because I don't need to know where they're going right because that doesn't matter so much I think with a novel I've um the novels that I've written, I have always known roughly where they're going, or at least I haven't started writing them until I've known where they're ending. And I think similarly, my full-length plays, which tend to be sort of a good sort of couple of hours long, like big mm-hmm. plays, because I think um, it's not that I'm a particular planner, but I feel that if I know if my subcon, if I know the ending, then I can trust my subconscious to get me there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any time that I've tried to sort of plan something, I lose interest in it. You know, I I know the rough milestones that I'm going to hit. I think. Right. Um, I know roughly where I'm going. Maybe that's why I love writing short stories because you feel that you're just like busking on pure instinct with them. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. a short story will end, and it'll seem really obvious in retrospect that that's the ending, but I won't have known until I got there that that's where it was <laughs> right. going. And you know, I, I really. But I think if you're writing something where you're more in it for the long haul i've i've always loosely known the ending do you end up uh doing rewrites with short stories like you do multiple drafts or do oh, yeah. you like leaving multiple, them in that multiple moment? drafts oh you do <laughs> yeah, i have a hard time uh, with multiple um, drafts i feel like i'm yeah. judging myself by saying oh, that so this hard. is this can be improved <laughs> no i'm really i'm really rigorous about and what i do actually with with not just a short story but anything i write is um, I never let myself edit on screen. Um, every right. sort of new draft, I print it off and I retype it all back in. Um, with my third novel, I gave myself a really bad sort of frozen shoulder, like trapped nerve from the repetitive strain injury of just like typing this whole thing back in, mm-hmm. which wasn't so good. But I find that it's a way to, um, it's a way to sort of streamline things it's the closest you're going to get to encountering it as a reader i think right um and i think as well that you know when you're writing those 
bits that you sort of know aren't that good but you sort of justify them and you think oh well it needs to go there because I need to get from here to here it's Mm -hmm. really really hard to keep those in when you're having to repeatedly you know rewrite them I find as well that there's something when you're I don't know how you feel but when you're editing on screen everything looks so finished already it can be quite hard to change it Um, you know whereas if you're typing something new if it suddenly opens up or if characters just start talking as happens with me I'm sure I think that probably happens with you as well you can just go with it and then if it doesn't go anywhere you can go back to you know the printout that you have beside you I'm actually um, uh yeah sorry I didn't mean to cut you off there no no go go on yeah I was, uh, I was saying that so right now and I know that you've had some radio plays as well I'm working mm-hmm. on a um an anthology audio play show. So mm-hmm. there, there are going to be little 20, 30 minute uh, plays and they're all made for audio. And Lovely. I'm turning stories that I've written before into audio plays. Like not all of them. Mm-hmm. Some are going to be originally written just for the show, but some mm-hmm. I really wanted to uh, see what would happen if the format changed. And I've had such a fun, t- like fun, but stressful time seeing that, when there's audio, like I can't, there's so much time matters so much because it's a currency really. And you can't yeah. take too long to get a scene, you know, like you can't spend and you can't jump too many locations because it's all audio. So you want, you don't want the listener yeah. to be confused. And I actually read this. Um, I heard Aaron Sorkin talk about yeah. uh, how he writes screenplays and he said something which I found really interesting. And I'm, I'm starting to try it. He says, so he, he does the, what you said, which is with the next draft, you retype it by printing it out and then just retype and then things change a little bit. But then Mm -hmm. he said he does a third draft where he Mm -hmm. takes the script away and he tries Mm -hmm. to write everything back by memory. And he sees if the scenes change. Sarah Moss does that. She's a brilliant, brilliant British novelist and, and I read that she does that. She just discards her first draft completely and rewrites yeah. all things by memory. That sounds really scary oh. to me, but I feel yeah, like I want, I want to try it to see if yeah. I can get the essence of... Because I feel like if you get that draft right, you yes. then you then you kind of knew all then along you know where the story was going. There. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think that's what oh, the, I'm going to try. The, I, feel, I feel kind of a bit... Um, my sort of stomach just flipped <laughs> adding that whole extra layer in but um yeah yeah, yeah. so terrifying <laughs> let's uh, uh we i do want to end with uh what has brought me to be able to talk to you is that you're going to be is this going to be your first jlf have you yes, done india is. before first. um do you know when i was um 18 i read um aaron hattie uh, 17 maybe Aaron had to be very good of small things yeah, uh, which yeah. I loved and since then I had desperately wanted to go to Kerala um, and I was lucky enough that before I went sort of it took me I think 10 years to manage to go to India at all but by then I'd met um, the brilliant novelist Tishani Doshi at a mm-hmm. festival in Wales and again here's the importance of festivals and um, yeah we had we had really got on and become friends over the course of the, the festival and, and since of email and um she invited me and my husband um to stay with her in chennai just outside of chennai and so when i finally did manage to go to india um we spent 
a really, really lovely time with Tishani and her beautiful sort of house on the beach in Chennai. Um, and then we explored all around in Pondicherry and we got the overnight train to Kerala and um, explored all of Kerala for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. So I've been to southern India, right. um, but never, never, never north. Kerala is, I mean, for a first experience, Kerala is a pretty great place to start. Yes. Yeah, the oh, north, so I'm, I'm from the I north mean, and it doesn't so, compare so to Kerala. <laughs> yes, there's so much of India that I would, I would just, just love to see. So uh, I believe, so you're doing two sessions at Belfast, right? I, I think mm -hmm. I have, I've seen that. So what is it uh, that you're looking forward to really? I mean, it's coming to, coming to your city. Yeah, I mean, it's the most exciting thing is the, the conversations and the connections and the fresh perspectives and, um, you know, the way at, at a Welsh festival, I met Tishani and then went to India, <laughs> you mm. know, that, that sort of thing that those, those conversations can can strike up and the the direction of your life or your writing can you know, tilt a little bit so I'm really looking forward to that and I'm really looking forward to the the fact that it's um I'm going to be involved in the first day of the festival this Saturday um and I'm really looking forward to the whole program of sort of back-to-back -back conversations you know to getting really immersed in that and to hearing so many new to me writers there are some writers who seem phenomenally accomplished um, and I'm really looking forward to meeting them and getting to know their work. Yeah, I would. The, the informal, you know, tea sessions where just all the mm. authors are just in the lounge area. Those are the fun parts, really. Yeah. When the exactly. mics are off. When, when, the, <laughs> when the mics are off. Always when the mic, when, when you hope the mics are off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When the conversations continue. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that so much. Da, 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 Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast.